welcome everyone. Happy Monday. Welcome to the Act Protect Engage Academy podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Chase H. Hope you guys had a great start to the week. I hope you didn't wake up this morning with the Monday blues because I hope you had a great weekend, an enjoyable weekend with your friends and family. I know I had a great day today, very productive and a even better weekend. Let's start off with some housekeeping as we usually do. First things first, if you guys can please turn on your notification, okay? If you do that, you'll get all the updates. All the latest episodes will be sent directly to your phone and your phone will let you know when a new episode is streaming. So, when you're sitting around and you're watching 600 Pound Life and you hear bing, you look down, you might just see that banner across the screen that says a.p.e academy that means a new podcast episode is streaming all right also there are a few things i need you guys to do and i promise i won't ask anything more of you all right all right can you rate us five stars four whatever you feel is appropriate be honest because i do look at the ratings and i use the ratings and the reviews to make adjustments if you have a few extra minutes, a review would be great. You don't have to write a lot, just a few sentences, and that will be amazing for our numbers. Okay, we love all of our listeners. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for another great episode. All right, so today we're talking about a really overlooked incident in American history, a very violent, shameful outrageous, unjust, and brutal event that has really been not discussed that often in mainstream historical circles. And I'm talking about the bloodiest riot, race riot, I should say, in American history, the Tulsa race riot of 1921. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because I kind of want to circle back to my discussion of America and the the debates and the conflicts that revolve around race, right? Now, race is, is, a, is a buzzword now. No one really wants to talk about it. As soon as you say the word race, everyone kind of just runs to their side and starts pointing fingers. But we really got to understand some of the history of this stuff, right? So why is it such an explosive issue in 2022? Well, because things like the Tulsa race riot, things like, you know, the Chicago riots or the Watts riots, um, some of these huge conflicts that have happened throughout American history hasn't been talked about the reasons behind them. People died. People were murdered. Businesses were burned to the ground. Entire communities were destroyed. And it was all because there are certain communities in this country that did not want to see others move up in the world. They did not want to see others succeed, right? The maintenance of the social order, right? Maintaining social order is what caused a lot of these riots. So today we're talking about the riot in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, all right? The early part of the 20th century was a dark period. You know, when I when I see a lot of people talking about 
big events and big moments in American history, usually it goes something like this, right? We do the Revolutionary War, right? Revolutionary War is really important, right? And then you skip to the Civil War, right? You talk about slavery, right? Slavery happened, boom, boom, boom. You skip to the Civil War, the South loses, the North wins, the slaves are freed, skip the, uh, the First World War, then skip again to the Depression, then skip again to the Second World War, and all of a sudden now we're in the Cold War. But what about all that area in between the end of the Civil War and the Great Depression? What happened in that time frame, right? So we're talking from about 1865 to the early 1930s. A lot happened in that time, but it's not spoken about a lot. It's not studied a lot. So I had a few podcast episodes, if you guys go back and check it out, about the Reconstruction, right? So I really wanted to track. Everyone knows what happened during the Civil War, right? That is a, oh, my gosh, that, that history field, that field of study is so packed with information, so much great scholarship has come out of the study of the Civil War. I love that period. But not as much has come out after, right? So we're talking the decades directly after the Civil War. During Reconstruction from 65 to 77, 1865 to 1877, and then you get to this really murky, dark period where a lot is going on, right? A lot of shady, dirty, nasty stuff is going on, especially in the South. And no one's really talking about it. No one really knows. No one's really reporting on it, right? And that's what we want to do, right? So in the next few episodes, we're going to talk about this period from Reconstruct from the end of Reconstruction to the Great Depression. So from about 1877 to 1930. You might be wondering, Chase, why do we need to know this stuff? Well, it sets the, it sets the stage. It sets the stage. So other than the First World War, not a lot of people talk about that time period, right? And obviously, we were involved. America fought in the, in the First World War, but it was more of a European conflict, right? It was a European conflict, okay? And, you know, we had a pretty good number of troops there, but our presence was, was minimal, right? There was a lot more going on at home. So we're going to talk about this period from an American perspective. What's going on at home, okay? So we got two sources today. The Tulsa Massacre of 1921, the controversial history and legacy of America's Worst Race Riot by Charles Rivers Editors, okay? We also have an article called Remember the Tulsa Race Massacre by Mr. Sean Price from learningforjustice.org. And our next episode, we're really going to get into the meat and potatoes of what happened during the riot. This part one is going to be setting the bed, right? Making the bed, setting the stage for what set up the riot, what type of tensions were, were felt in Tulsa, Oklahoma around this time that led to such a bloody and brutal massacre, right? It, it, it's a long story. And we're going to talk about it. All right. So first things first, let's talk about an introduction, right? The stage is set, 1921. All right. In 1921, the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was one of the most prosperous black neighborhoods in the entire country. Greenwood's nickname was the Negro Wall Street. I'm sure you guys have heard of this, right? Known today as simply Black Wall Street. The creation of Black Wall Street can be traced back to the discovery of oil in Tulsa in around 1901. This monumental discovery transformed a sleepy frontier town 
into an economic juggernaut, a modern-day boomtown. In the 1910s, Tulsa's economic gilded age coincided with a significant influx of African-American migrants from across the Deep South. And they came to Tulsa in an exodus that historians refer to as the Great Migration. However, the new transplants thought they were fleeing from an oppressive, racially intolerant Deep South into a land of promise, into a promised land, a land of new opportunity. They were mistaken because Oklahoma was among the harshest adherents to segregation, right? They were more of a racially rigid and intolerant social structure than even some of the oldest Confederate states. This is the story of Tulsa, Oklahoma at the dawn of the 20th century. This is the tale of a bloody massacre that has been hidden from popular knowledge until recently. In this two-part series, we <laughs> at the Ape Academy podcast will explore the racial, economic, and social dynamics of a sleepy frontiers town that suddenly exploded into a chaotic whirlwind of bloodlust, fear, and violence. And guess what? It all began on Memorial Day, May 31st, 1921, at or around 4 p.m., a clerk at Renberg's Clothing Store, which was on the first floor of the Drexel Building in downtown Tulsa, he heard a woman's piercing scream. As he turned in that direction, he saw a young black man running from the building. As the clerk moved to investigate, he found the white elevator operator, a 17-year-old white girl named Sarah Page, crying hysterically. She was distraught. Piecing the pieces of the puzzle together using his, old, his own flawed logic, right, trying to be Sherlock Holmes, the clerk concluded that Miss Page must have been attacked or assaulted by that fleeing young black man. Those are the only facts that just about everyone agree upon when discussing the riot in Tulsa, Oklahoma. By the time the final flames were extinguished, an undetermined number of black citizens lay dead. Conservative estimates stand at around 100 fatalities. Over 800 were injured, and what had been the wealthiest black community in America was burned to the ground. In the days following the riot, the Greenwood, the Greenwood neighborhood began the daunting task of rebuilding from the ground up. The former mayor of Tulsa, Judge J. Martin, declared, quote, Tulsa can only redeem herself from the countrywide shame and humiliation into which she is today plunged by complete restitution and rehabilitation of the destroyed black belt. The rest of the United States must know that the real citizenship of Tulsa weeps at this unspeakable crime and will make good the damage so far as it can be done to the last penny. But despite these powerful words from an influential leader, financial restitution never came. An all-white grand jury found that black mobs were responsible for all the damage. Not a single white person was tried or convicted 
for their roles in the bloody massacre. Quote, Indeed, given that racist violence directed at blacks was the norm in the Jim Crow South, and accusations of black teens or adults violating young white girls were often accepted without evidence, people barely batted an eye at the damage wrought by the riot, which would remain largely overlooked for almost 70 years. So, only in the last two decades has Oklahoma took a long, hard look in the mirror to examine the dark and shameful episode in their history, and today we're going to dig deep, we're going to explore what happened, how did it start, and what were the repercussions, all right? So let's talk about Tulsa as a city. In order to understand the Tulsa race riot, we must first look at the history of the town itself. Makes sense. Specifically, we must pay close attention to the linkage between economics and race in the history of Tulsa because they go hand in hand together. Racial intolerance and oppression, it can be traced all the way back to the first African slaves who arrived in Virginia in 1620. In the wake of the Civil War, African Americans won their freedom from the brutality of chattel slavery, and then they attempted to define their place in American society. This process was made all the more difficult by harsh discrimination, both legally and socially, through Jim Crow legislation and rigid social etiquette. The white perception of African Americans as inferior second-class citizens and as a generally dangerous presence within their communities who must be carefully monitored and controlled continue to shape policies in many states across the country. Oklahoma was no different. In fact, it can be argued that Oklahoma constructed one of the most rigidly segregated societies that even the staunchest former Confederate states would shake their head at. <laughs> it can be argued they were Oklahoma was pretty intense, and you'll see why. This, despite this, life in Tulsa for the average African American citizen, it really set it really set the example for prosperity and for progress. Right, their their lifestyle in Tulsa, even for Black folks, was a really really progressive. Um, it was comfortable. It was a pro progressive and a comfortable existence. The city was economically prosperous due to the booming oil industry, and despite Jim Crow and racial discrimination, black citizens of Tulsa enjoyed a high standard of living for the era. The black citizens shared in the town's wealth equally as their white neighbors. The Greenwood District, which was a 36-square-block section of North Tulsa, was considered the wealthiest African-American community in the country, called Black Wall Street, because of the large number of affluent and professional residents. In the final report of a 2001 Oklahoma commission to study the Tulsa race riot, historians John Hope Franklin and Scott Ellsworth described the Greenswood area that would be annihilated by the rioting. Quote, in less than 24 hours, nearly all of Tulsa's African-American residential district, some 40 square blocks in all, had been laid to waste, leaving nearly 9,000 people homeless. Gone, too, was the city's African-American commercial district, a thriving area 
located among Greenwood Avenue, which boasted some of the finest black-owned businesses in the Southwest. The Stafford Hotel, a modern 54-room brick establishment, which housed a drugstore, barbershop, restaurant, and banquet hall, had been burned to the ground. So, Tulsa in 1921 was considered a modern and vibrant city. Quote, of all the things that impressed out-of-town visitors about Tulsa in the days before the race riot, one of them was just how new and up-to-date everything seemed. From the modern office buildings that were rising up out of downtown to the electric trolleys that rumbled back and forth along Main Street to the rows of freshly painted houses that kept pushing the city limits further and further into the surrounding countryside, Tulsa was nothing short of an overnight sensation. So what sparked this remarkable transformation was actually the discovery of oil, specifically the discovery of the Glen Pool oil field in 1905. Within five years, Tulsa had grown from a sleepy rural crossroads town in the former Indian Territory into a growing, vibrant, up-and-coming city with more than 10,000 citizens. And get this, as word spread of the fortunes that could be made in the nearby oil fields, people of all races and backgrounds flocked into the city. By 1920, the greater Tulsa area's population had exploded to over 100,000. So in 1915, right, they had 10,000 citizens. By 1920, they had over 100,000, and that's because of the oil, of all the industry, all the money that started flowing into the area from the oil and gas trades, all right? Tulsa was the base of operations for over 400 oil and gas companies, along with oil field supply companies, tank manufacturers, pipeline companies, and refineries. There were four different railroad companies that serviced the areas. Cars packed the well-paved streets, and by 1919, Tulsa built a cutting-edge modern commercial airport. A new county courthouse was built in 1912. <laughs> a federal building in 1915. City Hall opened in 1917. The city could also boast of a 3,500-seat auditorium by 1917. So they had money. There was money up in Tulsa. And there were two main daily periodicals in Tulsa, the Tulsa World and the Tulsa Tribune. Four telegraph companies serviced the area, and Tulsa homes were outfitted with over 10,000 telephones. So they were not only uh, cutting edge with uh, architecture, but also with technology, right, with modern um, amenities. The town had seven banks and a dozen financial firms. There were jewelers, furniture stores, clothing outfitters, movie theaters, and various other shops for citizens to spend their new oil wealth in. Residents of Tulsa lived in some of the most stylish and modern homes in the entire country. But there's a caveat, right? Not everything is as it seems. Under the shiny interior, Tulsa was a city that was rotting from within. Tulsa was a troubled city with citizens deeply divided along racial lines. 
quote, what the pamphlets and the picture postcards did not reveal was that despite its impressive new architecture and its increasingly urbane affections, Tulsa was a deeply troubled town. And we're going to discuss why. It was a land of plenty, right? African Americans were among the original residents that flocked to Tulsa, and they were looking for prosperity and security for their families. Some of the black residents were from Indian territory and were the descendants of slaves who had accompanied Creeks, Cherokees, and Choctaws on the Trail of Tears. Others were the sons and daughters of runaway slaves who lived among the Native Americans before and during the Civil War. You have to remember, Oklahoma was still an Indian territory in the early 20th century. It wasn't admitted into the Union yet. It was still a territory. Most of Tulsa's new black residents were newcomers to Oklahoma, transplants from states like Mississippi and Missouri. Some came as far as Georgia. In a 2001 commissioner's report, the report noted that, quote, for many Oklahoma, for many, Oklahoma represented not only a chance to escape the harsher realities of life in former states of the Old South, but was literally a land of hope, a place worth sacrificing for, a place to start anew. And come they did, on wagons and on horseback, by train and foot. Many of the newcomers settled in the Greenwood area and quickly established a thriving commercial, cultural, and residential haven. They came from near and far. Of course, as with most areas of the country at the time, Tulsa was a highly segregated city. While they had escaped the worst of Jim Crow, Oklahoma was by no means a land of racial tolerance. That's for sure. Greenwood was really the only place that black folks could settle down. Quote, Greenwood was the on, not the only was not only the place where black Tulsans chose to shop, but was also practically the only place they could. Hemmed in by the city's residential segregation ordinance, African Americans were generally barred from patronizing white-owned stores downtown or ran the risk of insult or worse if they tried. End quote. The influx of money into Greenwood was partially out of choice and partially out of necessity, since it was really the only sensible area for black folks to spend their money. So, while the money helped grow Black Wall Street, it was really just a pr production of the strict racial segregationist policies of the city. Does that make sense? So, if the only place you can go and shop is Black Wall Street, and money is flowing in from the oil fields, and you're African-American, you can only shop on one strip, then yeah, that strip is going to get really rich and it's going to grow. It's going to boom, right? Because they restricted black folks to a certain area of the city, right? They can only really shop and settle and raise their families in this certain, you know, area restricted from most other places, right? Because it was a highly segregated society in Tulsa. And this rubbed a lot of black folks the wrong way because they had money to spend. And it's a really hard pill to swallow when you work hard for your money, you move from the deep south, you're working the oil fields, you bring your whole family up here, and you can't even spend your hard-earned money, and you got plenty of it, 
because the wealth is pouring in from all angles, right? And they can't even go and buy a, an ice cream for their daughter at a shop because it's a white-only shop. And their money's just as green as everyone else's. So that was really rubbing people the wrong way. And this, you know, stoked the flames, right? Here we go. Putting coal on the fire, right? Stoking the flames. And this was kind of the early days of Tulsa. In fact, right? So get this. So this is incredible. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about Oklahoma not being a very tolerant place. Despite it not being a southern, quote, you know, old southern state, it is an, a new Indian territory. It is, a, you know, it's a new state in the Indian territory. It's still more in line with the segregationist ideals of the South, right? We're about to go into that. One of the first acts of the state legislature after Oklahoma gained statehood in 1907 was to implement official Jim Crow laws. That is one of the first things they did. And actually, the first law of the new state legislature segregated all rail travel, and they soon passed voter registration laws, essentially disenfranchising all black residents. The Encyclopedia of Oklahoma does an excellent job of summarizing many of these new racist laws. Quote, now listen to this. Now hold on to your hats. The first legislature wrote segregation into law with Senate Bill Number 1 after first defining all people with any degree of African ancestry as black. They banned interracial marriages and miscegenation, both of which became felonies. State law also targeted ministers who performed ceremonies for mixed couples. They, too, could be charged with felonies. The legislature banned interracial schools at all levels. Many public facilities, along with common carriers, were segregated. Some 540 rail depots in the state had to be altered to fit the new separate waiting room requirement and new coaches also had to be added to the lines. Over time, legislatures segregated everything from hospitals to housing to cemeteries to restaurants. In 1915, Oklahoma made national history by becoming the first state in the entire union to segregate public pay phones. That's how petty they were. They were so petty, so racist, that you couldn't even use the same pay phone as a white person. <laughs> All you can really do is laugh at stuff like that, right? It's ridiculous. Localities passed their own individual ordinances to reinforce the state laws on the books at the Capitol. So these state laws were like the basics, right? Every town, every county, every city within Oklahoma could pass additional laws on top of the state laws. So the state laws set the groundwork for the uh, for Jim Crow, and then the specific cities, localities, whatever, they could even make it worse, right? They could make it even stricter if they wanted to. All right, so we're going to take a quick musical break. We'll be back in a flash. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. It's pretty interesting. Ape.
All right. <laughs> I want to. I don't want to uh, take too long. You guys might fall asleep with the soothing music. All right. I love country uh, western music. I love all different types of music. I might be listening to Biggie or Bone Thugs one second, and all of a sudden a country music or Metallica song might pop on out of nowhere. All right, guys, we're back. We were talking about how crazy Oklahoma is, how racist they they were back then. Um, I don't know whether they were trying to like set the set the tone or something when they first gained statehood, but they went crazy when they became a state because once they became a state, once they got admitted into the union, they could now pass all type of laws. Right? They had to, you know, abide by the quote law of the land, but pretty much. No one was enforcing what the Supreme Court was talking about. So it was really up to the local authorities to enforce federal law. And if they didn't enforce it, it didn't get enforced, right? Everyone looked the other way. So we're talking about localities. On top of the highly structured, rigid, and strict state Jim Crow laws, right? Localities, meaning local towns, local provinces, local counties could pass their own individual ordinances and these would help reinforce the state laws that were on the books. And of course, Tulsa made sure to pass their own laws. The location of black residential areas became a very controversial issue very early on. So in 1916, the Tulsa City Council passed an ordinance prohibiting anyone from purchasing a house on a block where 75% or more of the residents were a different race than the purchasers. Does that make sense? So, what did that do? Put simply, blacks could only live around blacks and whites could only live among whites. There was only one exception. If you were a black domestic servant who, were, who was employed at least five days a week at a property on a majority white block, then you could live there. So if you were working for a white family and you're an African-American, you know, nanny, cook, housekeeper, etc., you were allowed to live on that white block if it was over 75% white, okay? And that was the only person, that was the only exception to the rule. The U.S. Supreme Court would ultimately rule that laws like these were unconstitutional, but cities and towns across the state continued to enforce the laws on the books in defiance of the court, all right? They didn't care. They didn't care what those liberal weenies in Washington said, right? They're frontier folk. They're going to police their own, right? This really annoyed the black residents because it severely restricted where they could live and raise their families and it only added to the already existing racial tensions in the city. If black, if black migrants believed they had fled to Oklahoma to escape violence and racism of the Deep South, unfortunately, they were sadly mistaken because it followed them. All right, let's talk about the Klan. The Klan was huge in Oklahoma. Legal enforcement of white supremacy was actually the least of the worries for black residents in Tulsa. Oklahoma was not much different than the Deep South in its religious-like adherence to extrajudicial punishments. The insistence 
on frontier justice, the admiration of vigilante-type slangs was very common in a frontier territory like Oklahoma. Remember, it's Indian country, right? They have a history of being vigilantes, of being cowboys, of being free spirits, of taking the law into their own hands. As in many areas, no actual evidence of a crime was required to sentence a black person to death. Suspicion was sufficient evidence for a lynching. Quote, from 1911 onward, all the state's lynching victims, save one, were African Americans. And during the next decade, 23 black Oklahomians, including two women, were lynched by whites in more than a dozen different Oklahoma communities. Now, it's important to note that the residents of Tulsa, they knew all about the lynchings. And the black residents of Tulsa had, got, had gathered amongst, them amongst themselves, excuse me, and they had declared that they would not allow another black resident of Tulsa, Oklahoma to be lynched by a mob. They all came together in the Greenwood District and they said, look, they met all the leaders of the black community and many families met and they said, we're not gonna allow this to happen anymore, okay? We're not gonna let our young men and women be carried off by, by some mob and strung up in a tree. So at that moment, at the moment right before the riots in 1921, so this was like, I don't know, let's say a few years before, leading up to the riot, the black community had really come together. So they were pretty much one, like, unified block, right? There, weren't a there wasn't a lot of dissent within the black community in Tulsa. They knew that they had to stick together in order to survive, right? And with the, uh, the power of the Klan in the area, it was even more important to stay unified as a community. The most blatant, visible, and organized representation of white supremacy at the time was the Ku Klux Klan, the very visible, quote, invisible empire. That's what they called themselves, the invisible empire of the Ku Klux Klan, but they were out in the open. They weren't invisible in Tulsa. In the early 20th century, the Klan underwent a dramatic resurrection, coming back to life after being essentially outlawed in the late 19th century after conducting a violent and extremely bloody campaign of revenge and terror during the Reconstruction era, right? After the Civil War, five men, well, six, I think five or six, right? They got together and they formed the Ku Klux Klan. They were all Confederate veterans, and they were basically just a bunch of terrorists killing, lynching, beating, scaring off, any black folks who try to exert themselves and exert and exercise their new rights that were granted to them from the 13th and 14th Amendment, right? Um, they scared off Republicans. They tried to terrorize anyone who did not agree with their ideology of white supremacy, and they believed that the slaves, the former slaves, should remain second-class citizens they shouldn't have anything, and it shouldn't be worth anything. And they did their best to maintain that structure, that old South structure, way, way after the Civil War was over, right? That was their goal. But they had been outlawed, right? The government pretty much crushed them. 
they they made new legislation. It was called the Ku Klux Klan Act. Pretty much, they hemmed up all the major leaders. And if you were a Klan member, you were effed. Like like once they passed that act, Klan people were snitching on each other. They they were pointing fingers. They were throwing each other on the bus. Like the cowards they are, right? So that pretty much killed the first re, uh, incarnation of the KKK. But they came back with a vengeance in the early 20th century. They underwent a dramatic resurrection, coming back to life, right? In this new second reincarnation of the Klan, they came to life in 1915 with a dramatic cross burning. And it was at a meeting on Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta, Georgia. The new clan, they grew rather slowly during the first decade of the 20th century. But membership soon exploded at the conclusion of the First World War when fears of communism and general disgust towards a new wave of European immigrants swept through the nation. Not only did the clan experience a growth in membership, but also an expansion outside of their traditional southern homeland. Clan ca uh, Claverns, that's, they called them Claverns, Clan Claverns began to form in the Midwest and the Great Plains region. The Klan first arrived in Oklahoma in 1920, although there's no official record of Klan activity until two months after the riot. All right. Once the Klan made their presence known, Tulsa became a beehive of Klan activity. It is estimated that in December of 1921, the Tulsa Ku Klux Klan had a membership of 3,200 people out of a population of around 72,000. The growth of the Klan in Tulsa reflected the highly charged racial environment at the time. Quote, Klegals. Klegals are leaders within the Klan. Klegals capitalize upon the emotions in the wake of the race riot to propagandize the white community of Tulsa. The result was astounding. Soon, the Tulsa Klan number two, that's what they're called, boasted 2,000 members. The Clavern, the smallest local unit of the organizational structure within, wherein the ritual ceremonies were held, grew so rapidly that in six months, the Klan paid an estimated $60,000 for the local Methodist church building in Tulsa and built one of the largest meeting halls in the entire Southwest on that spot. The Tulsa Benevolent Association was formed by local white leaders in January of 1922. The association was simply a front company. It was a holding company for the Tulsa Klan under the leadership of the exalted Cyclops, William Shelley Rogers, and it included many prominent members of the local government, business, and professional communities. So the, the exalted Cyclops is a really, really high leader within the uh, high leadership position within the Klan. And pretty much everyone was in the, everyone important that was white was in the Klan, right? So most of the local government officials, a lot of the business owners, and a lot of the doctors, lawyers, dentists, bankers, etc., etc., were members of the Klan. Low key, like it's crazy. Rumors circulated that all district judges, the court clerk, the county sheriff, and all of the jury commissioners were members 
of the Klan. Despite these disturbing facts, the growth of the Klan in Tulsa occurred after the riot took place. So, the Ku Klux Klan cannot be directly blamed for the incident itself. Instead, I believe that the riot represented, uh, represented, represented the teapot overflowing with boiling water, right? So you ever made tea and you put it on, <laughs> you put it on the stove and you, and you turn the stove on and you kind of forget and you hear the teapot whistling and the, and the water is all over the stove, right? That's how I kind of see Tulsa in 1921 so racial and social tensions led to the riot and the tension boiled over and these tensions were partially caused by what made Tulsa so great right the economic boom caused by the oil and gas explosion in the early 20th century this boom benefited Tulsa residents of all colors and the fact that all colors benefited from all this oil money bred resentment and bitterness among the white population for the first time white folks witnessed a black community that was proud and vibrant the white community feared that all the new money flowing into the black community would make the black residents of Tulsa uppity maybe and God help us if this happens black folks would even consider themselves equals to whites this was unthinkable and unacceptable at the time people can't really wrap their minds around how terrible of an idea this was back then like how terrifying this was for some white folks back then it's hard in 2022 to put in the words what type of fear this stoked in people okay I mean I don't know what I can compare it to I, I, I don't know it, because when you think of people as second class, if you think of people as no way they could ever be equal to you, these people are second class, they're equal, they're nasty, they're disgusting, they, they don't deserve to be around me. And then all of a sudden they got money now and they driving around in fancy cars and they have the nerve to look you in the eye and talk to you like you're equals? Man, that was a fear that us modern day Americans can't really understand. That type of racism, thank God, is pretty much, you know, all but dead, other than in some extreme circumstances. It just, it just changed forms. But if you, man, I, I'm telling you, if you can go back to that time, we would be shocked as modern people. Also, get this, the return of black veterans, right, from the First World War to urban areas in 1918 caused many whites to worry even more. They feared lawless black mobs would threaten the safety and stability of their cities. Because, you know, black folks, they have gone to war, they've been drafted, sent to war, they fight, they die, they kill for their country, and then they come home and get treated like dogs, like animals, like trash. So white folks were scared, like, man, what if all of a sudden these uppity Negroes, these uppity soldiers come home thinking they're, they're the, you know, they're God's gift to earth because they beat the Germans and they'd start treating us wrong and they start wanting revenge on us, right? So what did the white people do? They reacted out of fear. In response to their irrational fear, riots broke out in northern cities. Rather than the feared black mobs, it was bloodthirsty white mobs 
who actually rampaged through black commercial and residential areas, burning, looting, and murdering innocent men, women, and children. One of the worst riots before Tulsa occurred in Chicago from July 27th to August 3rd, 1919, during which 38 people, 23 black and 15 white, died. 537 were injured, and between 1,000 and 2,000 Chicagoans, most of them black, lost their homes. Tensions rise. By 1921, tensions arising from a variety of factors threatened the fragile racial peace in Tulsa. Even though segregation appeared to be gaining traction statewide, in the months leading up to the riot, many Tulsans feared the exact opposite was actually taking place in their city. Quote, many were especially incensed when black Tulsans disregarded or challenged Jim Crow practices. Others were both enraged at and jealous of the material success of some of Greenwood's leading citizens. Feelings that were no doubt increased by the sharp drop in the price of crude oil and the subsequent layoffs in the oil fields that preceded the riot. Indeed, an unidentified writer for one white Tulsa publication, the Exchange Borough Bulletin, later listed niggers with money as one of the so-called causes of the, of the catastrophe. During the weeks and months leading up to the riot, there were more than a few white Tulsans who not only feared that the color line was in danger of being slowly erased, but believed that this was already happening. This, is, this paragraph is the key. Let me read one part again. I just want to read it one part again. All right. Others were both enraged at and jealous of the material success of some of Greenwood's leading citizens, feeling that were no doubt increased by the sharp drop off in the price of crude oil and the subsequent layoffs in the oil fields that preceded the riot. Indeed, an unidentified writer for one white Tulsa publication the Exchange Borough Bulletin later listed, quote, niggers with money as one of the so-called causes of the catastrophe. That sums it up right there. Right? That sums it up. You already hate black people. You already think they're second-class citizens. You already think that they're, they don't deserve anything right that they need to stay away from you now all of a, excuse me all of a sudden they got money more than you and they're driving around in their fancy cars and they have the nerve to challenge Jim Crow laws they have the nerve to challenge the social order what's next marrying our white women having mongrel babies that can't happen so that was the fear at the time and that is what led to the riot. God bless you guys. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We're coming out with another one on Wednesday. Please remember, subscribe, turn on your post notifications if you have time. Rate us and review us. We love you. Thank you so much. Shout out to all of our listeners domestically and internationally. All you guys that are listening right now, we love you. All right? 
Thank you so much. Stay positive. Put God first. Get after it. Ape out. Yeah, I'm a cowboy, baby. I can't sing, but I hope you guys have a great night. I'm going to hang out, relax. Hopefully watch a little TV before I fall asleep and snore. Have a good night, y'all. Ape out. Peace.